Well, welcome. Let's, uh, let's pray. Almighty God, how we love you and how we worship you on a morning such as this, as we cast our eyes across your uh, universe that you made, the sky that you made, which is so blue, the sun in the sky, the, the green of the countryside, all of these things, Lord, remind us of you and your power and how wonderful you are. But most of all, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, and we thank you for your holy scriptures that you placed into our hands. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit you put into our hearts to lead us as we study your word. Amen. Amen. Well, we begin our uh, August devotions this morning about the miracles of Jesus. Last month, Morris was leading us in the teachings of Jesus. Uh, the, the, sorry, last week, not last month. And now this week, I'll be leading in the miracles of Jesus. And today, it's uh, Luke chapter 9. And the title for our study is uh, All You Can Eat. And not much is known about Luke, who didn't include personal details about himself, nor about his background, nor his conversion. He's credited as being the author of this gospel and the book of Acts. And Jerome, one of the early church fathers, said he was a Gentile from Antioch. Luke was a frequent companion of the Apostle Paul, who referred to him as our dear friend, Luke the doctor. We read that in Colossians 4.14, which might explain the high profile he gave to Jesus healing ministry. In Luke's day, doctors didn't use uh, a unique vocabulary of medical terminology as modern doctors use Latin today. And that's probably why we don't see Luke's writings bristling with obvious medical terms. We read in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9 that Jesus called the 12 apostles together and gave them power and authority to drive out all demons, and to cure diseases. Then he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So they went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Their primary task was to proclaim the kingdom of God. And a secondary task was to heal the sick as a sign which validated their words. Because of what they were able to do, people were persuaded that their message about the kingdom was true. And this was also true of the Lord Jesus in his teaching ministry that we read of in the Gospels. This soon came to the attention of Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, who massacred the babies at Bethlehem after Jesus was born. Antipas ruled Galilee after the death of his father. He was puzzled because some people were reporting to him that John the Baptist, whom he had beheaded, had been raised from the dead. Other reports said Elijah, or one of the other ancient prophets, had been seen. And we read in verse 9 that Herod tried many times, 
unsuccessfully to see Jesus. I wonder if he really wanted to see him to know the truth, if he was the Messiah, or whether he just wanted to see the miracles that Jesus was famous for. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to Jesus of all they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Verses 10 and 11. Then we come to the most famous miracle, I suppose, of all in the Gospels, Jesus feeding the 5,000. It appears in all four Gospels. And although it's entitled Jesus Feeds the 5,000, as we've seen before, uh, there were probably 10,000 or more men, women, and children, just 5,000 men. Still a huge crowd. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. But Jesus told them to give the crowd something to eat themselves. Quite a challenge for Jesus to say that to his disciples, knowing they couldn't possibly do that. Jesus knew they couldn't feed such a vast crowd of hungry people, so perhaps he did this to stretch their ability to be compassionate, as he was. They answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. So he told the disciples to arrange for the crowd to sit, and he took the five loaves and two fish and prayed. As he prayed, he looked up to heaven. This was to make sure everyone realized that was where the answer to his prayer would come from. He divided the food and the disciples distributed it to the crowds. This is an example that we follow even today, isn't it? As we give thanks for our food, just as Jesus did, in recognition that it comes from God in heaven. This is why we close our eyes perhaps, and look up to heaven, even though it probably comes to us via Tesco's or Sainsbury's. It really comes from God originally. They all ate and were satisfied, and 12 basketfuls, basketfuls of broken pieces were left over, one for each of the apostles, perhaps. There happens to be 12 of them. He had used what the disciples had, and performed an amazing miracle, recorded, as I said, in all four Gospels. This was more than just an act of mercy for the hungry. Though that was important, it was also a sign proving that he was the promised Messiah. The next day in the synagogue in Capernaum, he preached a sermon on the bread of life and urged the people to receive him the spiritual bread who came down from heaven, just as they had received the physical bread. But the desire of the people was to make Jesus king by force, if necessary, so he could give them bread for the rest of their lives without the need to work for it. We read that in John's Gospel, 
chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Then when Jesus was with the disciples in private, he asked them a question. Who do the crowds say I am? They told him something John the Baptist, something Elijah, and something another ancient prophet come back to life. So Jesus said the most important question. What about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus told his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. There was a reason for this. He knew it might cause a popular uprising against the Roman occupation forces. And that was not what God had sent him into the world to do. Living in a free society as we do, we have no such limitations. We are free to tell anyone that Jesus is God's Messiah. This is wonderful, but people may not believe us, of course. As Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 43, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Jesus was not being proud by asking what other people thought of him, nor thinking about his reputation. He just knew that people had better be sure who he was, because what we think and believe about Jesus will determine our eternal destiny. Morris has reminded us of that last week. Jesus is not an option for us. He's essential. And what we believe about him will decide our eternal destiny, either heaven or hell. Later in verses 27 to 36, we read what we call the transfiguration. An absolutely wonderful display of divine power. Jesus said to the disciples, truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. They were about to have a most awesome experience. I wonder if this is what Jesus meant about some of them seeing the kingdom of God before they died. The mountain is not identified. But some think it was Mount Tabor. That was south of Lake Galilee. Others think it was Mount Hermon, a much higher mountain. That was north of Israel, where Lebanon borders with Syria. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Can you imagine how bright a flash of lightning is? Two men, Moses, the miracle-working lawgiver, and Elijah, the miracle-working prophet, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. Sometimes when we read in the Gospels of people talking with Jesus, we wonder, don't we, what they were talking about. But here, Luke tells us what they were talking about. They spoke about his departure 
his death, his departure from the world, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. That's his crucifixion and resurrection. And notice it says, which he was about to bring to fulfillment. Not the Romans, not the Jewish leaders. Jesus was in complete control of how he exited this world and went back to his father in heaven. They saw his glory and they saw the two men standing with him. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and they were afraid. As they entered the cloud, a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. The voice of God the Father. We need a, a thought for the day. Verse 17 says, they all ate and were satisfied. This miraculous provision of physical food satisfied all of the vast crowd, including the disciples. And as we've already seen, maybe 10,000 plus people, maybe 20,000 people, men, women, and children. Jesus knew his apostles needed to be filled and satisfied with spiritual food. So that was why he showed them his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they heard the voice of the Father declaring that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. Do you ever think of daily menus? Uh, the ladies, uh, certainly the lady in my house often thinks about daily menus, especially if people are coming. Do we have enough food in the house, you know? I wonder how much time actually we all spend each week planning the daily meals and menus. How much time shopping for what we need? How much time relaxing after our meals and allowing our bodies to digest the food? How much time watching our favorite TV programs while our bodies distribute the nutrients from our meals around our bodies as God designed? We were designed to do that. This is all good and necessary, but I wonder how much time we all spend each week planning the daily spiritual meals and menus. How much time researching, i.e. shopping, for Bible study materials or scriptures. And how much time relaxing, meditating, and ruminating, chewing the cud, <laughs> well, chewing the word after our daily studies. We need to be careful about our, our spiritual dietary requirements, don't we? If we are about to grow, if, if we are to grow and mature and be useful to the Savior, we need to know about him and what he requires of us and how much he loves us and how much we should love him. So we need to be careful in doing that, not just the physical meals that we spend so much time on, 